How's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, episode number 83, I'm super excited to introduce my good friend, Andrew Huberman. He's a neuroscientist and tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and has made numerous important contributions to the fields of brain development, brain plasticity, and neural regeneration and repair. On this episode, we discuss supplements for better sleep, health, and longevity, including one that Dr. Huberman says boosted his free testosterone by 10 to 20%, a trick that you can do with your eyes to rapidly and effectively de-stress. This was a new one for me, you guys. And then breathing techniques to settle your nervous system no matter where you are. This was a really fun episode to tape, and I have no doubt that you're gonna derive a lot of useful information from it. Dr. Huberman is just a boss, he's so articulate, and, uh, and he's a bona fide scientist, so I'm pumped for you to, to listen to it. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Four Sigmatic. Lately, I've been really digging Four Sigmatic's Adaptogen Blend, which is a convenient way to consume all of your adaptogens at once. You get two mushrooms, two roots, two leaves, two berries, and two superfoods, which combine to bring balance to your nervous system in every cup. You've got cinnamon, shisandra, ashwagandha, tulsi, chaga, reishi. Normally these mushrooms are found in individual elixirs, but what I really dig about this, um, this blend is that they bring it all under one roof and you use a little tiny scoop, you can throw it into your coffee, tea, or smoothies any time of day. There's no caffeine. Um, and adaptogens, what they do is they, they, I've heard them described as acting as a sort of vaccine against uh, psychological stress. So, if you want to try out Four Sigmatic's Adaptogen Blend or try anything else on their website out, you can go to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of everything and anything in their online store. Again, it's foursigmatic.com slash max or promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off. Now guys, please take a moment to let me know how I'm doing. You can do that by leaving a rating and review for this show on iTunes. I notice every rating, I read every review, like this one from Colette Ray. She wrote, Max, I seriously admire you and I'm so endeared by your commitment and passion. I love your guests, I love your questions and admire your truth. Please always stay you. Colette, that is just the most heartwarming thing that I've read all day. I really appreciate that. And I uh, appreciate your words and I appreciate the fact that you've taken time out of your day to leave them on iTunes. And to everybody else, guys, please let me know what I could be doing better, what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see, I don't know, less of. I pay attention and I'm happy to iterate and uh, I just wanna hear from you. So yeah, head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this show leave that rating and review. I would really appreciate it. And then secondly, you guys can support this episode of the show and every episode of, of The Genius Life by joining my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. All you got to do is enter your first and last name and your email address, and uh, we'll be in touch. I um, love to write emails, and I, uh, you know, as you guys know, I value your time and attention. So it's never spam. It's always good stuff, whether it's exclusive discounts or um, products that I'm digging or a book that I feel like you should read or science that has the potential to change your life or a pro project of mine that I'm really excited about. Um, I value every one of my newsletter subscribers and uh, would la love to have you on board. So maxlugavere.com, sign up. Would really appreciate that. 
And then uh, lastly, just spread the word about what we're doing here, you guys. Let's grow the audience. And if you have a friend or a relative or a dog or a cat that happens to like listening to podcasts, or maybe they don't even know yet that they like listening to podcasts because they just haven't dipped their toe into the pool yet, let them know about The Genius Life and force them to subscribe. Tell them that if they don't, you're going to cut them out of your life. If it's a dog or a cat, they're going to end up back on the street. If it's a parent, you're going to disown them. Use whatever tactics you need to because at the end of the day, it is for a higher purpose. All right, guys, I'm excited to dive into this chat with Dr. Huberman. He's the bomb. Uh, as I mentioned, we go deep into stress, supplementation, how to uh, mitigate stress in a really um, actionable and prescriptive way. And so, yeah, let's dive in. And we're rolling. Andrew Huberman. Dude, thank you so much for being with me on The Genius Life. Thanks for having me. It's great, I, great to be here. I love having bona fide experts on the show. <laughs> and, uh, and I just love it because I can go over to your Instagram page and geek out. I mean, you're just such a wonderful... I mean, I know that what you do for a living is you're a professor of neuroscience, but uh, you're also a great communicator. So, you know, it's rare, I, I think, that you find people that are able to, like, cross that divide and be both. So, yeah, thanks for doing what you do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sort of new to the Instagram thing. So in 2019, I started doing a semi-daily Instagram post on um, all things neuroscience. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from the general public about their curiosity about neuroscience. And um, there's just so much interest in the brain. And so, um, yeah, I've got my work cut out for me, but I've been enjoying it. So I love it. Well, you walked in here, you brought with you a bottle of Shilajit. Yes. What, what is this stuff? It smells like <laughs> it smells like the tire of my car. That's right. Um, so uh, just a, a little disclaimer, right? So my lab is a neuroscience lab uh, at Stanford School of Medicine. The Sheila G has nothing to do with my laboratory. Um, this is separate. I've, I'm, I've been uh, interested in supplements and uh, fitness and wellness of all kinds since uh, I guess for almost 30 years now. I'm 44 years old and got really into that as a youngster and have just kept up with it. And so I'm always experimenting with um, different things and I monitor my blood work and I uh, keep careful notes on all this. So today I brought over some Shila G. So that's uh, S-H-I-L-A-J-I-T. And it's a mineral pitch from the Himalayas. It comes in a jar typically, and it's this kind of goopy black stuff. And it does indeed smell like uh, kind of a burnt tire. <laughs> or a, uh, if you've ever been to the beach in Santa Barbara and there's a, some natural tar seepage coming up, that's what it smells like. And it's kind of what it tastes like. It's um, You dissolve a little bit of it, a very small amount, uh, like a small pea size amount into warm water. I usually add some lemon juice and it's fluvic acid. And the idea, I don't have any data on this, but the idea is that fluvic acid helps with um, sort of medium to large molecule transport across um, cell membranes. And it, um, in monitoring my blood work, it's um, certainly been helpful in uh, increasing the effects of or the levels of some of the endogenous hormones that um, one would like to see elevated. Um, not by a tremendous amount, but, um, but significant enough that uh, I've continued to take it. I take it for about uh, a month or so, and then I usually um, take a couple days off. Uh, it has a little bit of a stimulant effect. So if you take it in the evening, it can keep you awake. So you probably want to take it in the early part of the day. And everyone reacts a little bit differently to these things, as you know. Um, but for me, uh, in monitoring my uh, hormone levels, it's been, uh, it's been a great booster. It's put about a, anywhere from a 10 to 20% boost on um, some of the markers like free testosterone, um, wow. drops in cortisol, um, you know, and of course all that is on a backdrop of doing other things, um, 
uh, like nutrition and exercise and so forth. But while basically holding everything constant, it, the effects of it have been all good for me. So it's a fun one. And I, I thought maybe you, you would enjoy trying uh, something new. Yeah, I'm, I'm drinking it right now. Is there a time of day that you prefer to drink it? You said it, it has uh, stimulant uh, properties. Yeah. So I like to do my coffee in the afternoon. I'm a little unusual that way. Most people drink their coffee in the morning. I, sl- I could sleep at a gun range. You know, I'm one of these people I can fall asleep anytime, any place. So I drink mate. My dad's from uh, Argentina and I grew up uh, with mate in my home, which is high caffeine tea. So I drink mate in the early part of the day. And then in the afternoon, I usually shift over to coffee um, and or shilaji. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't have it right before bed, but um, that's typically when I take it. Hmm. Yeah. Dude, it's tasty. Um, or tasty is probably an overstatement, but it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm it's interesting. It. It's I was, very interesting. I, yeah. I was going to say it's, it's not, you know, it's probably not going to make it into the, the high end juice bars anytime soon. Um, has different effects on, on people. If you go to examine.com and you put in Sheila G it'll, you know, for some people, um, it can have like a mild aphrodisiac effect for some people, a stimulant effect for some people. Um, it's a little bit calming. So I think that has to do with people's endogenous hormone levels and mm. their cut their sort of, um, general makeup of, of hormones. And it just tends to augment all that's happening endogenously anyway, um, rather than have any one direct effect. Hmm. But those are all good things. I mean, free testosterone is like the more important form of testosterone in the body, right? And it's responsible in, in both men and women for vigor, for, uh, you know, obviously libido and body composition, energy levels, things like that. Just yeah. well-being. So, so many things. Well-being. Well-being has a lot to do with how, you know, you sort of general feelings of positivity when you wake up in the morning, drive, resilience, resilience to infection. Um, and yeah, you know, the testosterone molecule, um, exists in a couple different forms, but it can be bound up by what's called sex hormone binding globulin, Mm. which is a protein that kind of wraps the, um, testosterone molecule prevents it from uh, doing what it, what it would otherwise, um, stress can increase that sex hormone binding globulin uh, and limit the amount of free testosterone. This is a evolved mechanism for, um, under conditions of stress, you know, you need to designate resources more towards survival than toward reproduction. That's the idea anyway. Uh, and shilajee does seem to, um, dislodge, there's some evidence that it can dislodge sex hormone binding globulin from the testosterone molecule and also blunt tes- uh, cortisol a bit. And of course, cortisol and testosterone are in a kind of competing pathway. So you, if you're making a lot of cortisol, you're making less testosterone and vice versa. There's just no way around that. They have the same root uh, compound. That's right. They're sort of originally derived from the cholesterol molecule and then uh, pregnenolone, pregnenolone, um, you know, I'm going to get, it's been a while since I've, I've looked at the, the endocrinology, so I don't, I don't want to, um, uh, get any of that wrong, but yes, they are derived from the same source. And so they're in sort of competing production. And so Shilajee is working pretty far down the pathway. Um, you know, again, it's not going to create any massive effects in any of these things, but you know, of a, you know, a five to 15% change in some of these molecules can really have a positive effect, uh, on one's feelings of well-being. And to me, how I feel when I wake up in the morning is a really good indication of how well I'm taking care of my biology. Yeah. You said that you were, you're into supplements more generally. Like what, what else are you, uh, I mean, I definitely want to get to you and your work, but like, sure. but, uh, but this is cool because I, I actually, my first foray into health and wellness was through the world of supplementation as well. So I, I'd love to geek out on this. Sure. Topic. Yeah. You know, um, I'm happy to talk about this. I, I'll just, again, I'll just offer the quick disclaimer, you know, um, professor of neuroscience, I'm not an MD, so I don't <laughs> prescribe anything. 
I always say I'm a professor, so I profess lots of things. These are these are things that I do, uh, and they're not necessarily recommendations for other people. But um, so my friends uh, joke with me that uh, if you ask me what supplements I take, I should just say all of them because <laughs> we could occupy the, the whole hour talking about this. So here's my my basic. Uh, rationale when it comes to supplementation. Obviously, you want to have your, your sleep right, your food right, um, your social life right, and you know all the other stuff um, before you start thinking about supplementation. But in terms of supplements, there are a couple that I feel like are just really good across the board for most people, and this is why I take them. Um, High-quality fish oil, right? There's just really good evidence that you know in double-blind placebo-controlled studies, um, fairly high doses of uh, fish oil, uh, match up to a lot of antidepressants, right? Without the, the side effects, you can, it's a blood thinner. So if you're a bleeder, you got to be conscious of that. It's, you know, if the fishy breath thing, if you don't get ones that are like diluted with some lemon and things like that, but the, but the side effects are pretty trivial, right? So fish oil is definitely something that I always take regularly. The other is a good quality probiotic. You know, one of my colleagues at Stanford, um, Justin Sonnenberg, um, and he and his wife actually wrote a book about this. Um, you know, he works on gut microbiome. It's clear now the gut microbiome is communicating with the brain and all sorts of other tissues in the body. You know, I occasionally stop him in the hall and I say, okay, tell me, you know, what's the deal? You know, because the, the dirty secret in the microbiome world that sort of science of microbiome is that none of the commercial uh, probiotics actually are the replacing the same bacteria that's depleted from the gut. Hmm. But it does seem like the ones that you take can be converted to the, into those bacteria or mimic them. But um, the last time I ran into him, I said, you know, what, uh, you know, what should I be doing that I'm not doing? And he said, you know, what's remarkable is that if you look at inflammatory markers and anti-inflammatory markers, six servings a day or so of fermented foods has a dramatic positive effect by blunting these uh, inflammatory markers. So this is your, you know, your sauerkrauts, your kimchi is the kind of typical stuff uh, everyone knows about. Six servings isn't that much because the serving is so minuscule, right? And so I'm a big believer in taking probiotic. I, I, I notice a mood shift when I do it. I notice everything's better. Um, so that and fish oil are kind of that sort of baseline. And then I take a you know, a full spectrum multivitamin when I eat. I take some B vitamins um, if I'm eating a little bit more starches and training a lot, that kind of thing. I take fairly high doses of ginger um, for all, again, frees up testosterone from the sex hormone binding globulin. It's got a number of other positive effects. I take K2. I take, um, so, you know, I take some potassium because I tend to follow a kind of moderate carbohydrate diet. So I want my electrolytes topped off for nerve function. Um, I don't want to dehydrate, that kind of thing. Uh, I suppose the things that are a little more esoteric hmm. that maybe some of your listeners haven't heard of, and here again, you really have to think about this in the context of your own personal needs and biology. Um, always great if you can get your blood work done. So, um, you know, I'm 44 years old. Um, I'm not on TRT. I would be honest if I was, but, you know, I'm not taking a, a exogenous testosterone. I've never had very high or very low testosterone. A couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to start, you know, seeing what I could do in order to kind of play with the levels a little bit and see how that impacted me. And so one of the things that has a very strong, uh, effect there is something called Tongat Ali. It's an Indonesian ginseng. And I think it Solaray sells it. I don't have any relationship to any of these companies. It's like 425 milligrams of that a day. You want to cycle it like a couple weeks on, a couple weeks off, and that definitely um, will provide an, an increase in sort of vitality and energy. You definitely want to take it in the early part of the day. And then there's some compounds that are really powerful, um, things like Fidogia agrestis, 
right? I was mm. talking to Ben Greenfield about this recently. Um, Fidogia agrestis, which um, is definitely going to have an androgen uh, enhancing effect. And so these are legal, L-E-G-A-L, <laughs> uh, over-the-counter things that I'll take for maybe three, four weeks, and then I'll take two weeks off. You know, if you're the kind of person who's going to do, you know, take supplements that are going to augment hormones and you're not going to cycle off, you're going to be in a painful point at some point at some level, you know, and I have to say this, I know a number of people that, um, have done the whole thing with TRT for whatever reason, and then they cycle off. So that's testosterone replacement therapy. They cycle off and there's kind of a code language, you know, guys don't normally go up to other guys and go, yeah, you know, I'm having issues with my testosterone. They don't talk like that to one another, but I've sort of learned to pick up on the language. And, um, so a number of people have come to me and said, yeah, you know, I'm just not feeling as, you know, as good as I should. And I cycled off. And so these compounds that I just described have been ones that I've recommended to them and they've inevitably, and that isn't a huge sample size, it's not a controlled study, have come back to me and said, whoa, Shilaji, Tonga Ali, and some Fidogia aggressus, And I am better than I was on the gear. Wow. And so that to me is, um, that's a good indication that, you know, I'm probably on the right track here. And so my... Um, my sort of logic and, and my guiding logic with supplementation is get your, get your baselines right, get your sleep right, get your exercise right, get your food right, get your probiotic and fish oil, then start thinking about sort of new macronutrient, micronutrient relationships. You know a lot more about that than I do, certainly. And then if you want to start, you know, um, exploring the endocrine uh, space, then, then do that. Um, sleep is a big one, of course. And I will say for sleep, even though I'm a good sleeper, I, um, I have found a tremendous benefit from taking, uh, I take, uh, 200 milligrams of theanine before, before bed, about 30 minutes before bed and magnesium three and eight, um, which also has a neuroprotective effect as far as we know. Um, and magnesium malate. I take those and I basically feel like I got clubbed over the head. I fall asleep <laughs> so fast. And for men, there's one other, which is called apigenin, which is A-A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N. I'm almost reluctant to recommend it because it's kind of hard to find. There is a source you can get on Amazon from Swanson. They sell it. Um, again, no business relationship to them, but it's about 50 milligrams. Um, that also has a kind of a sedative effect for, it's not good for women. Um, it's a very potent anti-estrogen. It's actually the compound that's found in chamomile. So hmm. apigenin is found in chamomile and it's found in parsley. You'd probably have to eat a bucket of chamomile and parsley to get 50 milligrams worth. It blunts estrogen. Um, which for most men is going to be a good thing, right? You have to take estrogen pretty low before you start getting cognitive defects and, mm. that, and that kind of thing. So, that, you know, that's pretty much what I take these days. And um, I feel really good. I feel um, great, in fact. And, you know, if ever I need to go the route of, of more um, powerful um, things and all legal, of course, I would do that. But right now, that that's where I'm at. Yeah, it's amazing. I've actually written about Apigen in, uh, in Genius Foods. Because it's, yeah, it's, it's present in those herbs, parsley, sage, rosemary, thyme, uh, it could be a song, but, um, but they found that it actually has a synapse strengthening effect. That oh, compound. interesting. Yeah. It's like, an, it has a neuroprotective component to interesting. it. Interesting. I feel like we're in such a, a, um, like the conversation we're having could not have taken place 10 years ago, mostly because I feel like, um, a lot of this stuff was kind of cloistered away in health food stores, you know, I mean, the internet's had a lot of negative effects on the world, but it's, it's just incredible to me. Like the fact that you can educate people that they can, that people can share opinions, um, sometimes in a rougher format than we might like in a less polite format than we might like, but there's so much happening now in this kind of wellness, biohacking, optimal performance, science, clinical medicine, it's everything's funneling in. And 
know, for years I was exploring the supplement space and I actually would have to, I would kind of hide it, you know? Um, and then the big shift for me was I had a colleague who got um, very ill from pancreatic cancer. He eventually passed away, but, um, he lived quite long for somebody with his level of diagnosis. Um, and, you know, he was on a ketogenic diet, which I'm not, he was big into exploring, you know, how ketosis impacted his brain while he was going through the various treatments. And when I was a postdoc in his laboratory, 10 years prior, they teased me, the other people in my lab and some of the scientists teased me relentlessly because I was drinking, um, I would drink the oil off the jar of almond butter, (laughs) which is kind of gross. But I realized I could work much longer hours on a kind of low carbohydrate diet because I wasn't synthesizing as much tryptophan and serotonin. And then when I want to sleep, I would eat carbohydrates and I'd knock out. And so it was amazing to me that, you know, 10 years later, he was coming around asking for, you know, like what supplements, what sorts of things are you eating to feel better when he was in this highly compromised state? And that's when I realized, you know, scientists or non-scientists, we're all kind of just, um, you know, shuffling around in the dark, trying to figure out what's best for our health. And science has a tremendous amount to offer the fields of nutrition and medicine. I think they're super, val- those are all super valuable fields. But the, you know, the work that you're doing, which I follow closely, the, the work that you see out there in the general public and in kind of the social media, th- that is also playing a fundamentally important role because it's getting information out there. And everyone, of course, has to be their own best guide. But I really don't distinguish between, you know, um, you know, academic science, medicine, biohacking, wellness, and some of the health advice I see on Instagram. You know, everyone has to filter that through the logic of was, was it a mouse? Was it a human? What do I need? What do I need at this stage of my life? What does a kid need? You know, like I would say melatonin for an adult, maybe melatonin for a kid. Definitely not. Melatonin is responsible for suppressing puberty. That's its job. That's the first job of melatonin. The second job is to govern the transition into sleep. And so, you know, until that information is out there, we're going to be in a, you know, we're going to be going a lot slower. So it's exciting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have, you know, gripes to make about some of the advice and things that I see on social media, you know, but I think it's I would couldn't agree more with you that it's a net positive and that, you know, people, I mean, you know, I'm an example, but taking myself out of it, you know, I think you can learn a lot in the trenches. Definitely. of of whatever it may be dealing with uh you know battling an eating disorder or um becoming a competitive bodybuilder or powerlifter or just trying to be healthy and feel better and you know reduce bloating or you know GI symptoms so there's a lot to be learned i think from the crowd absolutely and, uh, absolutely yeah. and i think people in in this vast space that we're describing people are are i look at it and people are learning to be scientists like mm. they, it's in the same way that they're doing kind of hypothesis testing they're you know at first ever you jump on the you, whatever's latest and then if you're smart enough to realize hey this works for me or this doesn't work for me and to respond to that not just continue it because other people are doing it what you do is you start developing a kind of intuitive data set about yourself and there's no replacement for that mm-hmm. so Anyway, I, I'm very um, in, enthusiastic and optimistic about what I see. Um, I don't, um, I'm not uh, as out there in, the, in this world as you are. So I, yeah, I, could, I can only imagine some of the, the battles you find yourself in. But, oh, dude. But uh, you're, you're doing incredible stuff. So Thanks, man. I'm appreciative. I yeah. find myself in, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I, I would say that the, the vast majority of the, of the battles that I get into are with um, people online debating the healthiness of, you know, animal sourced products and things like that. That's like the, the majority of it. But other than that, I think everybody's pretty um, civil to one another. And I think it's, I think it's great. Uh, does anything that you see online like, like 
piss you off? I mean, are there like, <laughs> um, cause I yeah, mean, so it isn't that positive, but there's gotta be some things that you come across where you're like, goodness. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah. yeah. But then again, a lot of things I see in, in science piss me off too. <laughs> um, let me give a couple of examples. I think, you know, because of the short format of social media, sometimes it's, um, there's this tough balance be- that is, it's hard to strike the balance between wanting to be thorough and wanting to get the message across in a way that's simple. And so, you know, there's some things that I see out there, of course, that are about my field, neuroscience, that are just flat out wrong. You know, um, oh, goodness, I don't, I don't want to point fingers in any particular directions. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll, people will say, you know, have you heard the work of Dr. So-and-so? Or do you know? And, you know, typically these stories follow the same kind of th- three-stage format. You know, someone will say, have you heard of some practice, right? Have you heard of pineal squeezing or something? Okay, look. If you're squeezing your pineal, which I hope you're not because it's deep in your brain, you got bigger problems than telling me about it and me not responding well to that. Um, but, you know, someone will put out a practice and then they'll, they'll sense that it's doing something for them, which it probably is. And then inevitably I get sort of the third question, which is a, quest, a request for validation. Like, have you heard of this person? And, I'm, and I always think, well, if you're asking me, it, it always seems like they're asking for some sort of validation. Here, here's the thing. Of all the areas of biology, neuroscience is the easiest place to hide. Meaning people, including neuroscientists, can say things for which there's essentially no evidence. And the reason is that the brain is housed in the skull. It's this very cryptic, very enigmatic structure. We have, you know, some understanding of how it works, but um, people just make these claims, you know, like, oh, you know, if you breathe a certain way, you can release certain molecules. My favorite one, okay, is the one where people say that they're, you know, you've got crystals in your pineal and they're somehow acting as a, an antenna for a, like another dimension of existence. <laughs> I haven't heard you that. Know, yeah. And that certain forms of breathing can allow you to access it. Now I'm huh. not going after anyone in particular, but let me, let me be really straightforward about this since now I've said it. You have crystalline structures in many places in your body. That does not mean that they have any relationship to the kinds of crystals that we place value on that are outside the body. The one place in the body where it's clear that crystals and crystalline structures have a profound influence on your biology is your inner ear. When you move your head back and forth, front to back, sort of tilt, and then from uh, look from side to side, yaw, and then roll as you roll your ear closer to your shoulder and the other shoulder back and forth, tilt, yaw, and roll, or are essentially um, mediated by the semicircular canals. You have little crystals that actually roll back and forth in these little canals, um, you have three different canals on either side, that stimulate the neurons and inform the neurons where your head and body are relative to gravity. That is a concrete example of how your so-called vestibular or balance system works, and these crystals are super important for that. Crystals acting as like little antennae for reception of, you know, other planes of consciousness and things like that, um, just because they were identified in some structure of the brain, that's, um, that to me is somebody really creating a just so story about something for which there is zero evidence. Now I'm never looking to argue with people's experience. In fact, my sister is like a big believer in a lot of breathing practices. She really enjoys them and she doesn't care about the mechanism. She's like, and I, I love breath work. My lab works on breath work, but she and I will get into these little arguments. Um, you know, I say, well, there's no mechanism for that. She says, well, I don't care because I really like it. And I think that's the, where most people are coming to the table. That's fine with me. But when people start trying to build up this supposed um, mechanistic rigor as a way to convince people that what they're talking about actually has legitimacy at some other level, like a biological level, that's where I, 
I kind of roll my eyes. And actually, the, the problem isn't that um, they're not making me happy, right? That's not what's important. The problem is these fields that we were talking about earlier and the need to bring together people from diverse backgrounds, not just scientists, but clinicians, wellness, biohacking, nutrition, all of that is going to be hampered by people trying to cheat the system in that way. And it is a cheat. It's, you know, if you're not open about what we know and what we don't know, and you're trying to hijack biological findings and create more from them than um, they really are, then um, th that's, that's a serious problem because it's going to isolate that field from the medical community. And people can say, well, who cares? But I'm not too worried about the people that are really exploring. I'm trying to, these days, because my lab works on things like stress and how you achieve high performance consistently and um, PTSD and things of that sort, I'm trying to get to the inner city school kids. I'm trying to get to the people that have no understanding, no access. I'm trying to get um, to people who are, who are in like profound levels of suffering and I want to help people elevate high performance. So anyway, since you asked, yes, there are plenty of things that, that upset me. Um, that, I suppose, and uh, uh, the rest I'm pretty happy with. So wait, two, well, first question, um, does these, is that claim about the crystals developing on the pineal gland, does that have anything to do with the claim that uh, we can calcify our pineal gland? Because I've heard that. And I don't really yeah, know. The, the pineal gland sits in a region of the brain where there's some... Um, you know, pockets of extracellular space. And uh, I know this because I teach neuroanatomy to medical students. So I've, I've picked up a lot of pineals I've, I've, <laughs> in my lifetime. Um, I worked doing pinealectomies years ago when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, looking at the effects of, of melatonin in the pineal on seasonal reproduction and on other things. So I'm very familiar with the pineal gland. Um, the pineal can calcify in that little pocket because of the way extracellular matrix um, forms around it. But the pineal really has no trouble secreting the hormones it needs to secrete into the extracellular space. Now, recently it's got a lot of attention because it's true that DMT can be produced by the pineal in, in small amounts. And of course, there's this huge excitement now about psychedelics. The DMT being an endogenous psychedelic um, in principle, people are really excited about that. I just, I'm not saying... Any of that isn't true. I'm just saying that we need more, we, we really need to understand how this structure works before we can start. Um, just because a chemical is found someplace or something has a crystal um, property does not mean that we should start assigning value um, to that just because of that. In fact, if you wanted a really um, sort of uh, street level, um, you know, sort of description of what psychosis is, psychosis is really ascribing function and meaning to things for which there is no function and meaning. Hmm. It's like if I look at the lamp over there and suddenly I think the lamp is talking to me, that's concerning to you, right? Because we sort of have to set some level of bound, of upper bound on where we're going to create meaning. And so I, there, you know, for schizophrenics, they do what are called clang associations. They'll say, oh, I really like this cup, up, up. We should go up. You know, they start just going on the sound of things. And sometimes the the far end of the wellness space starts to sound to me like conceptual clang associations. Like people are just following these, like these ideas that are in their head, but have really no basis. Um, but then again, I don't want to say, I don't want to come across as, you know, like the ultimate cynic. I'm also super excited about what's happening in terms of uh, neuroplasticity, stress modulation. I'm a huge fan of breath work. 
things like yoga nidra. So we could go down any of those paths. Yeah. So let's go down some of yeah. those paths. But real quick, before we get into that, I also want to uh, ask a quick, quick question about probiotics, which we talked about earlier. Um, but just before we move, completely move on from that, um, are you? Do you mean that you take probiotic like a like a pill or supplement, or you you only do the probiotic containing foods? So I eat a lot of fermented foods. I happen to like sauerkraut. I like kimchi. I like pickles. I don't know how much probiotic is actually in pickles, but I like pickles, so I eat them. I love pickles. Um, yeah, I also take uh, probi. I take um, pill probiotics. Um, one thing that I learned from a colleague of mine at Yale, who's kind of a world expert in um, microbiome is that when you fast, so for you intermittent fasters out there, the, um, the fasting response includes a kind of um, digestion of, of the upper kind of upper margins of the, of the intestine. And so those people who are fasting perhaps um, need more supplementation of probiotic than anyone else because that's actually the, the primary home of a lot of the, the flora that are gonna have the most positive effects. Now I'm not doing any kind of really long-term intermittent fasting. Um, but I do notice that when I've tried that, taking the probiotics, I do feel better overall. Hmm. So. Super interesting. Yeah, I definitely, I was a lot more um, gung-ho about probiotic supplements before that study came out where they found that, you know, they gave these patients a, a, a course of Cipro and they found that, I'm sure you've seen the study where they found that probiotic supplements actually delayed recolonization of the gut back to what it was at baseline. Oh, I hadn't the, seen the that study. That's like, really interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, I feel like it's, uh, I don't know, just my own feeling at this point is that it's probably the best way to cultivate, um, you know, a healthy gut flora is with like food and with like a diverse array of plant fibers so that you're actually feeding the species that you want to, that you want to cultivate. Definitely. And I think Sonnenberg, who's a, you know, is this expert in this area would say that the same thing that you're saying. Um, they're also expensive. They're, they're, they can be quite expensive. And then when you travel, they have to be refrigerated. And um, so they're inconvenient. Whereas fermented foods are, um, you know, pretty inexpensive to, t to you know, take in the, uh, the levels that one needs. Yeah. Okay. So your lab, um, you guys focus on stress mitigation, breath work, high performance. I mean, these are all like amazing things. Where could we even begin? Yeah. So, um, you know, my career, uh, for the last two and a half decades has been really focused on vision and hmm. on the visual system. And the, the story of this kind of, um, goes right into some of the things we're doing now. And, um, since I'm guessing that some of the listeners might want some tools, um, it gets right into kind of tools that one can use for stress control. Obviously, um, stress is a necessary and important part of life. Um, chronic stress is bad, all that kind of stuff. But what happened was, um, years ago, I run this course out in um, Long Island every other summer, uh, the course in vision for neuroscientists. And, you know, I learned during the, uh, during the progress of that course from year to year that there's a system in the visual system of all mammals um, that allows you to see in either one of two modes. So if you focus your attention, like if we look at uh, one another across the, we're not going to eye gaze right now, but if we look across the table at one another, and we're in a kind of direct conversation, or you look at your phone or you're reading, your eyes are in what's called a virgin's eye movement. Your eyes are, are making the effort. Literally the musculature is tilting your eyes um, in slightly um, to focus on a particular point. And that uh, virgin's eye movement and focusing on a particular location in space is... Uh, it creates a sort of vigilance or it doesn't create stress, but it takes effort. It, there's a connection from the eye to the brainstem that creates a certain amount of alertness and vigilance. And it turns out that cranial nerve number two, which is the optic nerve, is the only direct route 
to the reticular activating system of the brainstem. It's the only direct pathway. And when you think about that, you think, huh, well, that's interesting. You know, I thought the eyes were for seeing. Well, yes, the eyes are for seeing objects and shapes and what direction they're moving. But before the eyes were ever for seeing, you know, set there for seeing, they were designed to set the arousal level in the brain. Hmm. And so your eyes are actually a piece of the central nervous system. They're the only piece of your brain that's outside the skull, for one. And it's clear now from the evolutionary biology that they were placed there in order to inform the rest of the nervous system when it's nighttime and when it's dark. And so your um, listeners are, might be familiar with the fact that you've got certain cells in your eye, these melanopsin, so-called intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells, were discovered by a number of different people um, and groups, but they read out how much bright light is in the environment, especially in the early part of the day. They signal this hypothalamic circadian clock that informs the rest of your body when to be awake and when to be asleep. But it turns out that on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, how you view the visual world is also changing your level of arousal state. So when you're looking for something, you're looking at something, there's this slight increase in vigilance. And it's not much. It's sort of like um, putting a, a, like a nickel down on the table. But you're doing that all day long. And there's another mode of vision where, let's say, you just keep your head and eyes stationary and you dial out your gaze so you can see the roof and the floor and you can now see yourself in the environment. And that's a distinctly different pathway from the eye to the brain. It disengages this alertness and vigilance pathway. So there's a kind of um, relaxation response associated with that. This is what the yogis would call soft gaze. Hmm. Um, and in doing this, this is how animals that... Um, are grazing animals, your cows, your sheep, your goats. This is how they view the world all the time. They actually can't do a virgin's eye movement because A, their eyes are on the side of their head, and B, they don't have a high acuity system for looking at things very finely in fine detail. So I got really intrigued by the fact that the eyes and vision are modulating our kind of arousal level. Arousal being, of course, alertness because um, it's sort of autonomic arousal for the aficionados. And so... We built a laboratory where we look using virtual reality. We place people into stressful circumstances. Some of these people have generalized anxiety. Some of them are what we would call typicals um, as opposed to normals, which has a kind of a, a, you know, a value judgment on it. And we put people into these high stress environments that we went out and filmed actually. So uh, cage exit diving with great white sharks. We went and did that with VR gear heights, navigating a really thin beam between two actual buildings, um, snakes, spiders crawling up your arms, things that are pretty stressful. And we look at how people view the world and we teach them to use their visual system as a way to modulate their internal state. Hmm. So one thing that um, is actually quite powerful is, you know, if you've been burning energy, like you're doing podcasts, you're on your email, you've been working out, getting a period of panoramic vision, as we call it, this kind of dialing out your vision, you can do it indoors. The best way and the most natural way that this happens is when you view a horizon. Hmm. So anytime you go to the beach, your eyes naturally go into panoramic vision. When you take a hike, you're not looking at any one particular spot. You're taking in this panoramic view. And I think it's one of the reasons why we undergo this relaxation response. So the fastest way to relax your nervous system, so you're going up to the podium, your heart's beating, well, you're speaking all the time, so this doesn't happen to you, but you know, a little bit elevated in terms of stress, you're going in for a hard conversation, talk to your boss or your spouse or something's you know, challenging. You're feeling stressed at the computer. Try dialing out your gaze and going into panoramic vision. It's a natural like component of the hardware that was built into you to relax this sort of alertness system. So I got really excited about that. And then we've also got some discoveries that are going to be coming out soon that 
actually in people who have generalized anxiety, the way they view the world is very different. They don't go into a novel environment and just kind of take in the whole environment all at once using panoramic vision. They're almost like looking through a soda straw all over. No wonder they're stressed. They're living in a tunnel. Whereas most of us kind of walk into an environment, like let's say the, the social gathering, everyone has a little bit of social anxiety, even if you're an extrovert, because you walk in, you feel this alertness come up, you know, you take in the whole picture, right? They're not doing that. People with generalized anxiety, their eyes are moving from thing to thing to thing and they're examining everything and it's exhausting for them. So um, vision and our levels of stress are intimately related to one another. And then I got really excited about, well, how else can we control our internal state, right? And everyone's probably familiar with the so-called autonomic nervous system. It literally means automatic, but it's the worst misnomer in biology because there are access points to control your level of stressness or calmness. As mm. I'm kind of making up those words, but um, I prefer them to sympathetic, parasympathetic because people always, when they hear sympathetic, they always think that means being very sympathetic and calm. Yeah. So it gets measured. I just say like alertness and calmness. Um, and the two other access points that are really powerful that I think now people are starting to appreciate, at least one of them, is respiration or breathing. This shouldn't come as a surprise, but you can control your level of autonomic arousal by controlling your breathing. Hmm. Now, of all your internal organs, like I can't move my stomach right now in any kind of direct way. I can't change my heart rate just by thinking about it, but I can change my breathing rate by moving my diaphragm and the diaphragm is skeletal muscle. It's like any other muscle on the body. I suppose the only other organ that we have that kind of internal organ that we have that level of control over was probably like, um, the esophagus and pharynx. I can swallow deliberately if I want. Um, but the diaphragm is amazing. When you think about it, it's an internal organ that you can voluntarily control through this nerve called the phrenic nerve. That's P. H-R-E-N-I-C, phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve is incredible because you c if I decide, it's operating my diaphragm all the time, but if I decide I'm going to now um, control my diaphragm, I can do it. I can just step in and control it like anything else. So there are tools that one can use for breathing. I don't think I've talked about this publicly before that are really cool that most people just have no knowledge of. Um, some of the yogis will probably say we've known it for thousands of years. And so hats off to you. Yes. But the, the biology community hasn't been aware of. There's a specialized set of neurons in your brainstem that are responsible for sighing. So this is done anytime people feel relief or kind of a letdown. It's the, okay. It's very relaxing to the nervous system, but actually you're sighing about once every minute or so subconsciously. And what it does is when you, it's because the little um, sacs in your lungs that bring in oxygen become collapsed from breathing, especially mm. if you hold your breath. And if you want to open those up again and balance the ratios of carbon dioxide and, ox uh, and oxygen properly, you need to sigh. So here's a proper sigh. If you want to relax really quickly, like you're stressed, Panoramic vision is a good one, even if you're indoors. And then try this. So you're going to breathe in in what's called a doublet. You're going to breathe in twice through your nose. So it's going to be inhale. And at the top of that inhale, you inhale again, and then you exhale through the mouth. So that's uh, in statistically is going to relax you about three times as much. So it's inhale, then in a second inhale, that opens the sacs and now exhale. And that brings your level of autonomic arousal right down to baseline. Wow. 
Now, there's some variation. If someone's having a panic attack, obviously, it's going to be more challenging. But so we've got it all backwards, mm. right? I mean, this is correct, but it's been all backwards. We've been told, okay, you're really, really stressed. Take a deep breath. Mm. No, that's actually the wrong evidence. You're going to draw more oxygen in the system. It doesn't quite get the balance of carbon dioxide and, and oxygen correct. And now, as I say this, I'm just thinking, I know the breathanistas out there are going to come after me. <laughs> They're going to say, no, you've got it wrong. And what if you've been hyperventilating, then you got the Bohr effect? Sure. Like I'm happy to go toe to toe on all that and have an in-depth discussion. But for someone who's just arriving to the table and wants to understand how can they control their internal level of stress in real time, this business of going into panoramic vision and doing this, what I call a proper sigh, which is basically taking advantage of these neurons that were designed to do this doublet, inhale, inhale, long exhale. So take a deep breath is not wrong. It's just not nuanced. But now you have the scientific you know, framework with which to understand why this wisdom of the ages, you know, works. I mean, like, it's kind of similar to, you know, whenever throughout recent human history, you'd have a big decision to make, right? We, we, we would always be told to sleep on it. Right. Well, now we know, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. now we know. Right. We got that, a lot of mechanisms. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. No, that's, yeah. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, the conventional wisdom is wrong. I think, you know, what my lab's been trying to do, and some of this is still work in progress, I just to be very open, you know, um, what we've been trying to do is go into the neuroscience literature, do our own neuroscience research on humans and on mice, and really figure out what are the mechanics of breathing under stress? What are the mechanics of breathing under conditions of calm? What are the mechanics of breathing when people are just deeply relaxed? And the sigh and the fact that we, there are neurons, uh, our lab didn't discover them, but another lab did, that are responsible for this doublet and then exhale that are tend to really promote relaxation of the nervous system, I think is um, exciting to us because what it means is as we start to dig deeper into the biology controlling this phrenic nerve to diaphragm thing, we're going to discover lots of groups of neurons that can give rise to lots of different sorts of autonomic and even emotional effects. I'm betting, and there are people already hot on the trail of this, including our lab, that there are labs that are responsible for crying. Their labs are responsible for coughing. It turns out um, recent work has shown that there are um, neurons that are responsible for hiccup. Hiccup actually occurs in utero, and it's a way of testing out. It's a test run of this phrenic nerve to diaphragm system. Wow. So when that starts kicking back in, just, you know, your, your system's just rebooting. It's okay. Don't freak. Um, and so, yes, I think that, you know, this is a good example where, you know, my lab's job is to look at certain things through the lens of neuroscience, publish papers in peer-reviewed journals, et cetera. But I think the early discussion about supplements and, and everything else and the fact that I'm trying all the time to learn what's out there is I always want to be integrating and thinking about what people can actually make use of in, in, right away. So vision, breathing, and then one that I'm really curious about and that we're still exploring now is how different patterns of motor movement, in particular activation of the vestibular system, can change neurochemistry for the better. You know, I, and the reason is the following. So just like, you know, if you look at meditation, clearly that it's a powerful thing. You know, I'm a big fan of what Emily Fletcher and, you know, and they're doing with Ziva. She was the one that really got me into this two times a day, 20 minute hmm. meditation. I started doing it. Um, it's powerful. Um, and it includes breathing components. So there are breathing components that we can extract and study. There are um, mindfulness components that other labs are, are, are studying. Um, movement, we just know that physical exercise is powerful for general mental and physical health. But what I'd like to understand is, you know, what aspects can help, you know, move out stress? And so some of the things that are interesting out there are like psoas release. There's a psoas shaking um, 
I've, I've gone and taken one of these courses. It looks a little funny, but um, the logic is, you know, that other animals are comfortable shaking out their stress. Like after an animal is killed on the, uh, in a group, like a gazelle or something. What's interesting to me is all the other gazelles just kind of go back to grazing. <laughs> They're like, you know, as if nothing happened. And so um, they shake off stress. They, they, they literally physically distribute um, stress. And we tend to do this by a night out or we go for a run. My laboratory, because we can't have people running in our lab and dancing in our lab, <laughs> I'm very interested in some of the tools, maybe even um, electrical stimulation tools that would allow people to release tension from the psoas if they're chronically holding tension there. Because I think you see that a lot in um, conditions like generalized anxiety and PTSD. So there's the whole somatization of stress as well. So those are the three main areas that we're working on now, vision, breathing, and kind of movement musculature stuff, and really trying to attack it through the um, kind of lens of neuroscience and physiology. And that's why sometimes it can sound a little dry, but I, I, I fully acknowledge that one doesn't need mechanism to go do a practice. Um, mechanism, however, allows us to evolve other practices. So one that I think might be of interest is I'm a big believer in yoga nidra. I don't hmm. know if you're familiar with it. Yoga nidra literally means yoga sleep. You lie down, you don't do anything. You just listen to a script. Um, it tends to put people into brain states that are very similar to sleep. And I used it for years to recover sleep when that I wasn't getting. So if I wasn't sleeping enough, I would wake up and do a 30 minute nidra or a 10 minute nidra and found it immensely rejuvenating. So we've um, measured different aspects of physiology while people are in, I would say nidra like scripts that involves long exhale breathing, lying down, total stillness, as well as things like hypnosis. And really the goal is to find tools that people can put to use because low cost, anywhere, anytime type tools that people can use to learn to take control of their nervous system because that's what so many people are struggling with. Um, so we're always looking for subjects. If you want, you can always just direct message me on Instagram. It's Huberman lab. Um, that's where we recruit our subjects. We actually pay you. So this <laughs> is not a sales pitch. We pay you. It's not a, a, a huge sum of money, but we pay you come out to the lab. We give you a parking pass and a t-shirt. It's, I realize it's not like winning the lottery, but, um, we really want to unpack how it is that the human animal can learn to control their internal states. That's basically what we're up to. Crucially important. I did a yoga nidra, uh, for the first time at, um, the Revitalized Conference, which was where I saw you the last time, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, that, great conference. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, I wanted to, to ask you quickly. So the I, the broadening out to a, a panoramic gaze, I think, is super interesting. Is it? Have you guys, you mentioned that you did that VR sort of study. Mm -hmm. Is that where you were able to like get a sense of causality? Because I know we're, I mean, we're probably like focusing on a more narrow field of vision when we're stressed. But what you're saying is that you found that just by broadening out, you can kind of have a reverse. Yeah. Uh, you can actually will yourself to a, to a less stressed state. Yeah, uh, great question. So when you are stressed or when you're excited for that matter, the world does not look the same way to you. And that's because when part of the, the stress response or the alertness response, or if you see someone you're really excited to see, is, a, is literally a movement. There are neurons that control this movement of the lens in your eye. And you literally start to see individual things in your environment better than everything else. Mm. And the backdrop falls away. It becomes blurry. Now, nature designed this on purpose so that you would monitor that crucial thing in your environment. The pupils go big when you're in this mode of alertness. Anyone that's taken, I'm not suggesting anyone do this, but you know, the sort of, uh, if a cop pulls you over, they're, they're going to look at how big your pupils are because they know 
that people who are high on stimulants like amphetamine, their pupils are huge because they're in this high alert system. That high alert system is what creates that vigilance and kind of tension in the body and you're tracking things, right? For, for better or for worse. When you deliberately relax your gaze like this and you dial it out, so again, seeing yourself in the picture, you're essentially turning that mechanism off. And so what's interesting about vision and breathing is it's a two-way street. So the neurons that control emotionality control the neurons that control breathing. This is obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Like you see something that startles you and you breathe differently. You hold your breath and then you quicken your breath. The neurons that control breathing also control the neurons that control that are responsible for arousal and emotionality. It's a two-way, it's wow. a reciprocal circuit. That was discovered by Mark Krasnow's lab at Stanford a few years ago. It's a reciprocal circuit. In the visual pathway, and this is more the, the kind of um, pathways that we're working on, the same thing holds true. You see something, you're in a state of alertness, and your vision changes. But you can deliberately step in and disengage that mechanism. You have voluntary control, and you go into panoramic vision, and you can relax that mechanism. So the calmness that you experience when you go into panoramic vision is by um, turning off a component of the alertness pathway. Because the sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways, the alertness and calmness pathways, are in kind of a push-pull. But they are separate pathways. They are unique sets of neurons operating on unique organs and tissues. And so what we talk about autonomic balance, they're, they're not really pushing and pulling on each other as much as they're working at the same time. In, and so whether or not you feel more alert or you feel more calm or you feel really, really stressed really reflects which one is in, um, active in, uh, to a greater degree than the other. So um, panoramic vision is a terrific way to, to kind of lower your stress level. I encourage people to, to try this in a simple way, which is even though looking at your phone is not stressful, when you walk between meetings or, or from your car into the house, try just going a few extra paces each day without looking at it. Now, the reason I don't recommend that people not look at their phone at all is A, I'm from Silicon Valley and B, I'd be a hypocrite because <laughs> I look at it all the time. That something that's not getting across in the language and the messaging around um, sort of telling people to stay away from their phone is that not looking at your phone is also stressful. So, you know, when someone says, don't look at your phone for a morning, great. Uh, you know, that there's some benefits to that. But I got a dog I'm concerned about. I got a lab I'm concerned about. So we're going to have to learn how to balance our, our stress with the reality that this device that is creating a certain amount of stress and tension is also essential to maintain our levels of calm. And so there, someone's got to come up with something. So one idea is just to try playing with panoramic vision. This is your nature, God-given right, whatever your leanings are, that it was installed in you. It's a mechanism that other animals use. So predators like lions don't sit around all day, you know, lining up prey. What they do is they're mostly in panoramic vision. Hmm. And then when they want to hunt, they go into these modes of, of high vergence eye movements. This is um, something that people in the military community and in sports, elite sports performance communities, that they sort of have known this intuitively. They know that you can sort of create a sense of, of urgency and deliberateness about an intent if you draw your eyes to a particular location you really focus. I use this when I write or if I'm feeling kind of low motivation, low energy. I'll actually concentrate very intensely on a single point in space. And it has that effect of drawing wow. this vigilance up. Yeah. It's amazing. But it also makes me think about the fact that, you know, I just recently moved from New York City, which is a city where for all intents and purposes, you literally can't be, you can't put your vision in that mode in that city because you're going to either get killed by a bicyclist or you're going to step in poop or you're going to bump into somebody who's going to potentially want to kick your butt. So 
that's a city where you literally cannot, you know, and then there are many cities like that, I'm sure, where you can't, there's just nothing to zoom out to. And if you do, you're at risk for hurting yourself. But it's also on the flip side of the coin, I think, just another mechanism by which, you know, for which getting out into nature and whether that means going to the beach or going for a hike is so, can be so profoundly beneficial to your health. And it's also a mechanism by which it connects for the first time to this study that I read a few years ago, which I think also came out of Stanford, where they found lower levels of inflammation in people who regularly experienced awe and wonder, which is which was an amazing study. You know, it was like mm-hmm. just totally an association that mm-hmm. they that they were able to find. But um, but yeah, so those two points, like yeah. one is that living in a big living in a city um, and certain life circumstances might not really allow you to to zoom out to that degree, and it could have negative health implications. And then the other side of the coin. Yeah, is the is the value of nature. Yeah, so you know, um, I love New York City. Since I was a kid, I, I've had this obsession with New York City. So, you know, and one of the things I love about it is every once in a while you're walking down the avenues and you'll, especially in the afternoon, you'll look and you'll catch a long view out to the, you know, one of the long avenues, and you'll yeah. you'll realize suddenly you're in this much bigger context, because indeed the the buildings are very big and you're kind of getting. It's a form of claustrophobia. If I want to stress somebody out, and we do this in our lab, I don't want to scare any potential volunteers, but. Um, if I want to get somebody's stress level up, I put them into a visual world where they think they're in a small box. Hmm. They can't see very far. And if I want to relax them, I give them horizons and panoramic gaze. Also, the exhale stuff and the other stuff we talked about are helpful. And of course, you can compound all those. You can you can add them up and you know uh, stack them rather. You can dial out your gaze and do long exhale type sighing, and then you really start to relax quickly. But yeah, you know, if you're in New York or when I'm in New York, um, it's usually on vacation, but if I can imagine it's really stressful. And then you, if you go out to like the piers or something and all of a sudden you take a seat on the, on the bench and you get that horizon, it's like another world, you know, and I bet you, if you measured the sound levels, they weren't going to be that different than a few blocks away. I mean, it's not a real, real experiment, but there's something about those vistas Mm. and there's something about, um, horizons that are inherently calming and, you know, a a friend and colleague, his name is John Rady, R-A-T-E-Y. He wrote the yep. book Spark and Go Wild. Um, he told me that, uh, and I have to find his source for this, but he told me that uh, a lot of um, vistas, like that where people pull off and, and there's a sign like, scen- you know, scenic spot or something, that both animals and humans tend to go to these vistas a couple times a day, you know, and that's actually why they've set up, uh, you know, lookout points and things like that. But that animals do this naturally. They look for horizons. They, and now you talked about awe, this is getting a little bit abstract, but there's something very special that happens when you go back and forth between focal vision and dilated vision. It's not that one is good and the other is bad, but when you go back and forth, you actually reset the capacity to be in the other. So, for instance, if you've been working hard at something, like I know you, you got a book coming out soon. I'm super excited to read it. And I'm sure that was a ton of work. I know this because writing is hard. And so you're writing, writing, writing. And then you leave for a little bit and you kind of drop the writing for a bit. And you stay away from the phone. You get a jog or you go out to the beach or, or, or what have you. And then you return to it. It's almost like your capacity to focus at that depth has been reset. Hmm. And I think that nowadays we really need to think about how we're balancing these different brain states. When you're in a panoramic state, one thing that happens, and this gets a little bit down in the weeds, is that the, so the brain is always doing space-time calculations. It's saying, over what space can I, over what time and space can I influence things? So there's this whole idea of extrapersonal space. So for instance, there's a, a mug of Shilaji in front of me. I can reach to it and I know that. 
my brain knows that I can't reach across the room and open the door because it's some distance away. I need to walk there. When you are in an environment that's very expansive and you're viewing it that way, you actually start to bin your perception of time differently. Okay. You start thinking about the things you're doing in a broader context, a broader time domain. And this is a well-known phenomenon. It's actually a phenomenon. And this is something I'm, I'm researching right now that magicians exploit. Hmm. They are playing with your space time perception in the rates of things. They have their secrets. I have been sworn to secrecy, so I can't reveal them. There are <laughs> a lot of amazing magicians here in LA. And, um, some of them have let me in on some of their, um, tools. Uh, so I don't want to compromise those relationships, but they're playing with your perception of how fast or slow things are actually happening in order to gain this kind of advantage over your perception. And the awe that you describe is when you see something that violates your kind of space-time perception. It's like, wait, no way. That was there. It was just there. There's no way that could happen. Oh, now, of course, it's not magic. What they're doing is they're playing with your time perception. And they are, um, in many ways, exploiting these uh, aspects of our brain that it can dilate and contract not just space perception, like looking narrowly or looking broadly, but time perception. And this is why, you know, when something shitty happens, we say, you know, this too shall pass, right? We're trying to remind people that that incident is housed in a much longer set of incidents, you know. But if you spend too much time thinking about, well, we're just this little, you know, rock floating around in the galaxy or whatever, well, then the book you have to write doesn't seem as meaningful, right? <laughs> you know, so the, the, the essence of the human brain is this ability to deliberately toggle back and forth between space-time representations. I don't mean this in any kind of mystical way or, ast or um, astrological way. Um, it's, you know, this is what other animals can't do. They can't make plans. They can't take a context from the past and really pour it into what they're doing in the present. And so the visual system is really the way in which we can start to walk through these portals. These are actual perceptual portals. And panoramic vision and focal vision are just two of those kind of far extremes. And I realize this is getting a little bit abstract, but I think uh, hopefully people will be able to kind of superimpose their own experience on what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the essence of mental disease, frankly, is the idea that what's happening in the moment it sucks, sure, but that it's either going to go on forever or even if it gets better, it's just going to return. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, like one, two of the hallmarks of mental disease. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think the field of mental health and, me and mental wellness really needs to focus on is what are the tools that are going to allow people to broaden their perception of time so that they can see that indeed they're in discomfort. But the fact that they survived that discomfort five minutes ago means they can survive it again. But that's not how mental disease works. Mental illness, I should say. In mental illness, it's the like it's the feeling this is going to go on forever. And so a, a kind of longer term goal of mine and my laboratories is to figure out how this stuff works about kind of acute stress, sharks and spiders and heights and claustrophobia and stuff, and then really try and export tools of, or, of how one can control their internal state so that we can really develop better tools for mental health. Because ultimately, like I feel like an emotional calling to that, like at a deep level, it's just like I look at the homeless problem in Northern California, Southern California, and like clearly it's a mental health issue. Also, there are many other aspects to it. But if you've ever known someone who's depressed, you're not talking to the same person. You're like talking to a, a, a like a little thin slice of what they're, who they really are. But to them, it's come to occupy everything. And I think that um, since my profession is the profession of the 
of the brain and that's that's what I'm focused on. I really think like this is something that we need more people working on and thinking about like how do we start to dilate and con take control over our the dilation and contraction of time perception. I love that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it harks back to, I did an interview with Michael Pollan, whose work I'm sure, well, sure. I mean, it's yeah. not his work necessarily, but the, you know, his reporting on what they're doing at Hopkins using psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms to basically cause a dilation of time for patients with terminal cancer so that, that they're able to step outside of their circumstances and make peace with the fact that they, you know, that they're, that they have this, you know, this terminal life diagnosis. Um, but, but I really appreciate what you're doing because, you know, I don't think that uh, substances are the only, you know, the only way, should be the only way towards that end. There were definitely one route. Um, I get asked about psychedelics a lot. You know, I, I have to be careful because I, I, I can't suggest anything that's illegal, right? But I think, you know, Pollen was the one who, you know, he pioneered the discussion in recent years. You know, there have been others. Um, clearly, psychedelics create states that mimic sleep-like states. And in sleep... Um, space and time are very fluid. They're outside your control. It's also the only time that you're not focused on anything external, mm. right? And so sleep, in addition to having all these important effects on um, resetting our biology and our immune system and our everything, you know, I'm sure people are familiar with Matt Walker's work and so forth um, and many others, sleep really resets our ability to deliberately control where we place our attention, mm. Right. It resets our ability to uh, deliberately contract and dilate our sense of time, right? If you want to make somebody psychotic, you sleep deprive them because all of a sudden you, you lose control over those anchors. And psychedelics are interesting because they place people into states where space and time are very fluid and they're pseudo under control of the person experiencing that. It's not quite like a dream where you, you really can't control the dream. You know, if you're a really experienced lucid dreamer, perhaps. But um, I'm interested, I'm really excited about what's happening in terms of the clinical trials. I have to say, I'm a little concerned that there's so much discussion about clinical trials before they're done, because one way to really sabotage an effort to um, bring something to FDA approval is to uh, release clinical trial results before they're done. We're, we're, hmm. Like we have a clinical trial going on in my lab, totally unrelated to psychedelics. I don't even know the results. I'm, I'm blind to the results um, for that reason. So um, I think things are, we're definitely in the course of a, of a revolution right now in terms of how these substances are being discussed. I don't think they're the only answer, as you mentioned. I think they're gonna be one piece of the puzzle. But like think about kids, right? What about a kid that's depressed or a kid that's experiencing high anxiety? You know. I, you're, it's hard to imagine psychedelics are going to be your primary uh, route of, no, of yeah. dealing with that. Well, it seems to me like they're just a shortcut to this, you know, panoramic gaze and the deep breathing and everything like that. It's like a, it's like mainlining awe and wonder if you're, if you hadn't been previously taught the tools that you're basically elucidating, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like a, it's just like a quick route, but I think that it's probably more valuable to be able to occasion, to use, you know, Roland Griffin's term, mystical experience, uh, you know, in the same way that it's, it's better to be taught how to fish as opposed to being given a fish. You know, it's better to be taught how to go out into nature and how to have these kinds of um, experiences where your gaze naturally falls to this panoramic vision and you start breathing in a way that's like, you know, doing what all the sages, you know, like uh, in the 
in the sphere of breath work have talked about. Definitely. And, and I think that, um, you know, the social community and the support that people have of, or, or may not have to reintegrate after that is going to be super important. You know, I, I think, um, I think it, I'm delighted that the conversations are happening. You know, my lab represents one set of tools. Um, the stuff going on at Hopkins is another set of tools, I, you know, and I think there's going to be a, um, a lot of points of convergence, yeah. you know, and the work you're doing, um, you know, I don't distinguish between the kinds of, like, it's not just because we're seeing here. I don't distinguish between the kinds of things that you're doing and the kinds of things that are in my lab in terms of their utility, because people need avenues to explore. They need information. They need to understand what the incentives are. And, um, and what's so incredible about the human animal is that um, not all of us, but many hu human beings are trying to improve their, their mental health, their physical health all the time. And once you, as you've seen this, I'm sure many more times than I have, once you arm somebody with a tool, it's almost like you, at that point, they're good, yeah. right? You know, once you arm them with a tool and they have control over that tool, you've really, you've changed that person. Mm. And I trust that humans are going to be able to navigate this space well. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting um, what's happening right now. And I think the MAP studies are ongoing, um, mainly with psilocybin and MDMA and LSD. One thing I do want to put out there, for those of people that talk about microdosing, make sure, uh, this is just the chemist in me, make sure that you distinguish between microdosing, which makes it sound like it's a smaller than effective dose, smaller than um, uh, sort of hallucinating inducing dose and things that work at microgram concentrations. Many things work at microgram concentrations and are whopping doses. Mm. So, you know, I think that the phrase microdose is it doesn't quite capture the, the chemistry of a lot of those substances. And so I talk to people, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, is it safe to microdose? And I'll say, well, what do you really like? What are you talking about? First of all, I'm not in a position to say yes or no, but what dose are you really talking about and of what compound? Right. So th there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, a lot of the stuff is still really opaque. Yeah, totally. I mean, just from my ambient like exposure to friends who enjoy, quote unquote, microdosing, like nobody actually knows the dose of anything that they're taking when they're you know messing around with those kinds of substances like mushrooms and things like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at any species, whether or not you're talking about a sport like surfing or skateboarding or uh, or you're talking about um, uh you know, psychedelics, or you're talking about science, there are always going to be people that are going to be out on the front edge trying different yeah. things and really experimenting, you know, the sort of pioneers. And, um, you know, I'll be the last person to say that anyone, you know, I, I, you know, I basically believe that once people are of a certain age, they, they have a right to control their biology in the way they want. I mean, a lot of these things definitely are still illegal, but, you know, here I am, you know, I, I really uh, explore the supplement space. So, yeah, you know, I, I have to, I want to be honest. As we sit here drinking this beverage that tastes like the tar, the, the tire. <laughs> How are you feeling on this? On the, it, I feel good, man. Yeah. I mean, I okay. feel like. You at least don't feel bad. It definitely, I think it kind of put me into a flow state because this was like, this went by so fast. Yeah, there's, uh, Sheila G's, uh, I like it for a reason. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's good it's some, stuff. It does something. Yeah. I like it. Well, dude, this was like an amazing chat. Definitely one of my favorite episodes of The Genius Life to date. So thank you for uh, for coming over to my um, place. Most welcome. For, Thanks for having having me on. Yeah, and you're welcome back anytime. Like, I feel like we didn't even get into light and, you know, like all these other things. We, we could go about, so. We could go many hours. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe uh, a part two or three at some point down the road. I really appreciate you having me on here. I'm uh, I've been tracking your work for a long, long time, and we have some common friends, and um, I genuinely uh, think the world of what you're doing. It's Thanks, great. man. I, yeah. I really appreciate that. And likewise, um, 
Just one last question before uh, before we wrap. Before we get to that, how can listeners? You already kind of mentioned your Instagram, but just uh, refresh our memories. Where yeah, are you on social media. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram, Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B, all one word. Um, you can DM me there. Uh, I do these, you know, posts in 2020. I'm going to start doing some um, neuroscience tutorial on uh, YouTube. Should be accessible to the to the um, novice and to the general public. Um, I'm uh, working away at a book, but too early to talk about. Um, not, I'm not trying to be cryptic, but um, stay tuned for that in 2020. And, um, you know, I do try and answer all questions um, that people shoot my way. Sometimes it takes me a little while, but I always love to hear what, uh, what's on people's minds. And that's the way to find me. Just wait until you get a bigger following. You're going to say, it's, it's really difficult to answer all questions. Yeah. We, I, I try as hard as I can. Yeah. I use um, the audio script to reply. Oh, that's um, cool. Because I don't like typing with my thumbs. I feel like I, uh, I just, I don't know. And I don't like looking at the phone and yeah. focal vision all the time. So sometimes I'll look at those, then I'll walk and I'll answer a question and then shoot it back. And then I'll, I'll just kind of record a little one minute thing. And then I can take a walk and answer all these questions without having to like constantly be typing and going back and forth. Super smart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you guys listening, you know this, I try in earnest to reply to everybody, but it doesn't always happen. Without well, following me. is, 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 uh, dwarfs my uh, <laughs> following, but, um, so I can only imagine, but yeah, it's it's tricky without like want you know, be, without being on your phone all day long. Um, but yeah, I guess good problems to have. All right, Andrew. Well, the last question is, uh, I mean, you could answer it philosophically, answer it however you'd like. What does it mean to you to live like a genius? Oh my, that's a. Hmm. Well, um, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of kind of four levels of. Uh, health. And I actually do this as a practice. I do a, a check-in that has kind of four levels. I, I wake up or periodically throughout the day, I ask myself, um, you know, how, how am I feeling in my body? How's my body feel? What does it need? You know, um, do I need rest? Do I need to, to move? Do I need to work? You know, kind of what I try and sense into what my physical body needs. Um, I asked the same thing of my, uh, for lack of a better word, my sort of emotional self, like am I feeling isolated? Uh, we can get into this, but there's a lot of incredible data about how social isolation actually leads to these, you know, things like tachykinin and infl- inflammation. That's a real part of our biology. I asked myself, like, what do I need? Do I need time alone? Or do I need time with people? My kind of emotional self, what, you know, what do I need? Do I need to laugh? Do I need to spend time with my dog? Like, and I try and, uh, you know, respond to that, um, or be responsive to that, set something, a plan perhaps. Um, and then my intellectual self, I definitely, you know, I've got a, since I was a young child, I've got this hunger for information. I love information and I love aggregating that information. And so, um, lately because I'm uh, learning a lot about diaphragmatic control of breathing and stuff like I've become really interested in opera. I never thought I would, I'm a, you know, I grew up on punk rock music, so, but they're the virtuosos of diaphragm control. So, um, I'm learning about opera from some great, um, opera singers and, um, and that's satisfying like this intellectual interest, but, uh, and that makes me sound like I do kind of, you know, very sophisticated things, but I don't in general, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, you know, surfing Instagram for all sorts of things. Um, but I love satisfying that intellectual side of myself where I'm really learning and it's actually a little bit hard. Like the information feels a little strained even but to get, bring in the information. Like I really have to kind of work. That feels like good stuff. And then I, you know, I'll be honest, I, I believe in a, in a spiritual 
self. And so that fourth category, and that's a tough one to describe and it's highly personal to everybody. You know, I'm not saying it's high personal. I want to keep it secret. It's just hard to put into words, which is, you know, how am I linking up what I'm doing in a, at a daily level, my daily experience with the kind of long arc of life and the reality that, you know, uh, I've probably, you know, unless barring accident or injury, I've probably got, you know, another 45 years to go. Um, you know, maybe if the longevity folks have their, their way, then we'll go to 120 or whatever. But, um, I try and place into a bigger context, like how am I relating to kind of the, the bigger whole? And that's a tougher one to, to kind of act on in the moment, but I try and pay some attention to that. So to me that, uh, uh, to, so to directly respond to your question, you know, a genius life is where you, um, I'm neither over-focusing on or neglecting any of those things for too long. Cause you know, day to day, the ratio shift, but, um, yeah, that's what it means to me. And I'm, um, always, it's always a work in progress. Man. Well, Andrew, you're right. You have so much to profess. <laughs> Indeed, I do. I, uh, guilty. Yeah. Guilty as charged. You're very good at what you do, man. I really enjoyed this chat. Um, to all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. Take a moment to share this episode of the show. Help us grow the genius life. Tag uh, Dr. Huberman or myself. Um, spread the word about what we're doing here. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace out. <laughs>